Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Earlier this year, I met up with Lena Fliesbach, who together with Hannah Beck Manageta curated the group exhibition Zero Waste, which was scheduled to open in March this year and eventually was postponed until the second part of 2020. In accordance with the COVID-19 restrictions, I attended the soft opening of the exhibition at the end of June, where I spoke with the two curators, Hannah and Lena, director of the Museum der Bildende Kunst in Leipzig, Gianetta Stoschek, and a number of participating artists who are at the museum to finish the installation of their works in time for the opening that evening. Be sure to subscribe to Subtext and Discourse on your preferred podcast streaming platform, or go one better and leave us a review or rating to help others discover the show. For our regular listeners, today's episode is a bit different from the usual format. Rather than a single long-form interview, there will be five short interviews, each averaging 10 minutes, which give personal insights to this group exhibition and the stories behind some of the works. First up, I speak with the two curators of the Zero Waste exhibition, Hannah Beck-Managetta and Lena Fliesbach. When we met up in February, the world was a different place. The exhibition was meant to open in March. Now we're three months later, and tonight there is going to be a soft opening of Zero Waste. It's good to actually speak with both of you, because last time I only spoke with Lana, so that was one half of the co-curatorial team. How has it been then since the breaks we put on everything from COVID, trying to make the exhibition work under the new conditions that we're all now under? First of all, I have to say it's a little bit strange to open three months later because we were about to start the transport and the evening before we we had to cancel everything. We are very happy now, of course, that we can open Mm -hmm. the exhibition, although it's a soft opening. A so-called soft opening means that everyone, of course, has to have the mouth and nose protection in the building and probably there will be waiting times because only a certain certain number of people can be in the museum at the same time. Mm -hmm. And we also had to rearrange some works. For example, we have one virtual reality work of Bianca Kennedy and the Swan Collective. And now we have some single-use items, unfortunately, which is not, of course, the concept of zero waste. But you can you can put it under the virtual reality glasses, for example, and some disinfection spray. Then some people, some artists cannot travel. For example, Michel de Bruyne, he, he lives in Canada and mm-hmm. he cannot be here. Also, his other projects were cancelled. And also the program, right? We didn't know when we started to plan the the new opening again what about the program now which is also really important we are working with local partners mm-hmm. and beforehand it was the plan that a lot is taking place in the museum but now which is also really nice we have more uh, satellites in the <laughs> city in the way so we go really to the cafe kaput for example which is a repair cafe yeah Now people can go there not only for one event, but during the whole period of the exhibition, which is now running until the 8th of November, Mm -hmm. and can go there and repair things. And we have the Zero Waste Kitchen from the Brazilian-Canadian artist duo Kadisha de Paula and Chico Togni, which is supposed to be here in cooperation with the cafe at the museum, is now outside in a garden, and that was planned before kind of with a cooperation with the Gemeinschaftsgarten Anna Linde, 
We have also a sound walk through the city, which was not such an issue because mm -hmm. it's a sound walk without technical equipment. It's really listening to the noises and sounds and how she calls it, sound noises of the city. Okay. No headphones. Oh, I no headphones, yeah. No headphones. Oh, gosh. So you've had quite a few... Rearrangements, some rearrangements. And we also have some video works which were planned with headphones, actually. And now the sound is in the... Oh, it's in the space, it's in the yeah. space. So have there been any positive outcomes? Like now you mentioned that the Kaput Cafe, so the repair cafe, rather than them relocating here, people that visit the exhibition will go there. Do you think that could also have a positive flow-on effect that people who go to the Kaput Cafe will then perhaps come to the museum? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, they could have get to know the ca repair cafe experts here and then they kind of know about the cafe too. But now they really go to the location and then they maybe have the feeling, oh, I can go here very often. And it's also nice because when they go there, they also get a free entrance to the exhibition. So they can still visit both places in a yeah. way. Oh, nice. One of the projects that really fascinated me was the one from Andreas Greiner, where he's calculating the CO2 from the exhibition. Yes. Has that already started? Yes. Yeah, no, I have to begin with what, what he does. So yeah. we don't only want to do an exhibition. We also wanted to hold the CO2 footprint low and make it transparent and also trying to compensate it by planting trees within the city of Leipzig. Andreas Greiner is concerned about this for a long time already and he is calculating the CO2 footprint of the exhibition that comes up with transport, production, also just running such a huge house like a museum. So mm -hmm. he tries to count in several data. I mean, he will kind of follow it through the duration of the exhibition and there will be kind of a final result yeah. maybe at the end. But for sure, we don't know if we are able in the end to compensate this. Nevertheless, every tree we will plant will be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. It's <laughs> and, a positive um, contribution to the city. There's already one tree. Yeah. We planted already one. And then we will see because all the income of the catalogue will go to this project, like 100%. Oh, the proceeds so will go to it. Proceeds. The proceeds, sorry. Yeah, the proceeds. So depending on how many catalogues we will sell and also maybe someone will pay a, li a little bit more, we can plant more trees in the city of Leipzig. In the arts and in fashion and in design, we're always talking about how great we are and that we're sending a positive message. And then we hold events that completely contradict what it is we're trying to tell everybody else to do. So does the exhibition or how rather does the exhibition practice what it preaches? Yeah, I mean, the art world is a big waster, actually, and everything what comes with it. Some of the artists uh, really decided not to travel here, especially mm -hmm. from abroad because of that. And they also partly make it transparent, like Mika Rottenbeck, for example. 
and the artists who are coming now it's a bit different as Lena already said but the Indonesian duo Tita Salina and Irvan Ahmed they will come now much later mm -hmm. but in the beginning it was also planned that they have which they could also postpone a residency here and another project and so we always said okay people don't jet set only for the opening or something like mm -hmm. that but it's still a good thing you always have to okay what do I do right it's always different when you can meet people in person and I think this is also still a value yeah that they can tell people directly here in Leipzig about the waste problem in Indonesia but we also try to avoid transports for example Tita Salina and Irvan Ahmed they show two video works and to one of this video works that belongs a big object which is actually in Australia oh, at the moment. Okay. And we decided, of course, not to do this transport, for example, and other transports as well. And then also we decided not to produce new works, only if it's the only possibility, like some prints, for example, we had produced. The exhibition display is also recyclable, so the museum will use it after the exhibition for transport. The whole thing we, we thought through, how, how can we deal with this? And I mean, for sure, it's not really true that there are no new works because there are also site-specific works, but also all the works, they use used materials already. Yeah, I noticed that actually. That often they've recaptured materials that were either waste or they'd outlived their purpose and then they've repurpose them. Right, right. But it's not only for sure material out of waste, it's also that it can be used afterwards or it has as an artwork a long life maybe. Yeah. What do you both hope that people take away from the exhibition when they visit this? Of course, what would be good that people start thinking about their own consume a little bit more and also about their own behavior and maybe what is possible to change for them. Because, of course, it's it's not possible to do everything perfect, but one step or two steps in the right direction do make a big difference. We are very happy because the press is really interested and this is really good because it opens up the discussion about these topics. No, I noticed actually you've had quite a lot of press already. Yeah, that's really cool and in a positive way, really, really in a positive way, I think. And I, I think that the work, some of the works really draw the attention to things, maybe also these little things you don't knowledge at all that this is also like for example Clara Meinhardt who's based here in Leipzig she's doing concrete works out of duroform which is used for any uh, electronic devices and for whatever vacuum cleaners and everything and it, on the one hand it's a good material and what it can do that's why it's used so much but on the other hand it's one of the worst for the environment. Mika Rottenberg investigates the working conditions of global supply chains also focuses the scandalous ecological and social conditions in which consumer goods are produced and I think this is also very interesting that when you talk about waste you always have those social topics and it's all connected of course and it was really important for us to see this that this is a global problem and also have different 
perspectives on it. So a lot of artists, they have different focuses in their work thematically, but also they live in different parts of the world. For example, Viba Galodra lives in Delhi and she made the experience that the particulate matter in the air, for example, it's so heavy that she and her friends and family all have health problems because of it. And I think this is also something which these problematic issues that were like appearing very obviously also with the pandemic in a way that now you saw, oh, we have these global chains, we get whatever mask from Asia, but we also get local fruits. I mean, fruits that are not exotic for us, but also an apple is coming from New Zealand to Germany. And this is also something photographer Alexander Olofs, who has also different works in the exhibition, is pointing on. And also, I think Vipa in Delhi, she could for the first time see some attractions of the city from her balcony that were like hidden under a smog cloud or something oh, before. So when all the factories and everything in the cars were all at a standstill, she could actually see the city from her balcony. Yeah, kind of. I don't know if we have seen these images of these metropoles. I don't know. Also the Chinese wall and things like that. Yeah. I think really there are a lot of things that we take for granted. Absolutely. That's kind of the cost of our lifestyle sometimes, that we can have things that are affordable and readily available. But then in other parts of the world, the conditions are quite horrendous. Keeping with the topic of particle matter and dust, artist Eric Sturm has a number of works included in the exhibition which focus on this very material. The works you can see here in Leipzig developed from 2012 till 2017. But I never showed all these works together, so it was a good thing to show them here. Yeah, like a survey exhibition of the dust chapter. Yeah, exactly. But how did you get the idea for collecting the dust? It started in Hungary, Budapest. I studied there for a while. And at this time I lived at the Buddha side and I studied at the Pest side. You know, it's... Um, yeah, the river goes through and then one side's Buddha, the other side's right, Pest. Right, yeah. with the chain bridge. So I had to go with the bus every morning from Buddha to Pest. The way was through a tunnel. Um, and the tunnel was kind of confusing for me because cars were driving, people were walking through. And it was a weird mixture because it was a really long tunnel. It was about 400 meter long. And I got interested in this tunnel. I don't know. I saw that teenagers were marking their names and writing things with their fingers in the dust. And I thought about this principle and I developed a work which was cleaning a line from the entry to the exit of the tunnel. So this is how the dust... But that was the first piece that you did with the dust? Yes. I think for me, one of the ones I thought was most interesting was this Nektorschwarz, where you'd made a paint out of the dust. Yeah, so when I was back in Stuttgart, I showed these towels, mm -hmm. you know, which was my tools for this action. And I realized, you know, when I made the action in Budapest, it was more about the action. Yeah, because there's a video as well that goes yeah. with it. It was about the video and cleaning the tunnel and making the slide. But I kept the towels. And when I was back, I shot them in the art academy for the summer exhibition mm -hmm. without the video, just the towels. And what I realized was that the dust got visible. First, I thought it's interesting because of my weapons from this 
leftovers from this action. But then I realized another aspect is also really interesting, which was making the dust visible. And Stuttgart is capital city of dust, yeah. <laughs> of, of car dust, kind of. It's a big thing there, big issue. And it was present in the media. And there is a, a ranking in Germany with the most polluted cities. Yeah. And Stuttgart was like uh, number one since years. So I thought about making something with dust in Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. And I started searching for it, which wasn't easy. So that's how you came to making the paint out of the dust that you collected in Stuttgart? Yeah, it, it took a while to get there. First, I had to find the dust and I caught companies who were running these fans mm -hmm. in the tunnels because I thought they have filters or something. Yeah. And they said, no, we have no filters. It's just <laughs> the wind, you know, just conditioning the yeah. fresh air. And then I started calling the Landesumweltamt who were running the station for the measurements of the air because I knew they, they have these filters in this. Oh yeah. They must collect samples. To yes. Measure it. And then we had some good talks and they kind of liked my idea, but they said, we cannot give you the filters because it's too toxic. And then finally I, 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 I went by myself and started looking for it. And it took a little while because yeah, dust, what is dust? Dust is like small particles which are flying, mm -hmm. especially the particulate matter. So you actually cannot really collect them, maybe some grains, but yeah. I wanted a bigger amount to work with it um, in a sculptural way. So I started researching, thinking like an archaeologist who was looking for something. And yeah, I found some spots where the dust could sediment for years or decades. And I found these little holes or like electricity rooms mm -hmm. or something where the wind goes in oh, and the dust cool. sediments. And then, yeah, I found a spot with kilos of dust, like really, really yeah. fine dust. Yeah. And then I had this dust, but then I, I, I didn't really know what to do with oh. it. So I started reading books of dust science and dust science is a really interesting thing. So what did you find out? For instance, there is naturally dust from deserts or volcanoes or seas. And about 80% of the global dust is from nature. And it's really, really important for ecosystem because some dusts from a desert is important for a forest on the other side of the globus. Really? Yes. And it, it's mobile. It gets transported by winds. So we, this was really interesting and it was a nice picture, like the mobility of, of the dust. Another interesting thing was that cosmic dust is raining on the earth. Oh, really? Constantly. From yes, from space, constantly. And it's about 40 tons a year. And how do you recognize it? It's hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> but these dusts who come from cosmic are billions of years old. They're like from the origin of the, of the earth. Yeah. Wow. Which is really interesting for science because it's residues of, of the first days. I mean, I'd never really thought about dust like that. Yes, it's really interesting material. It's kind of an index of time. If you have the right tool, you can read it like an archive. Oh, really? Yeah, because dust doesn't exist. It's not a material like stone or wood or sand it's a word for small particles oh right in a group because if you had one piece of dust yeah well you can't have a piece of dust you have to have it is something you know it's something which got crushed mm -hmm. into small particles someday 
for example, uh, Gletscher. You know, what's Gletscher in, in English? Gletscher. You know, the ice mountains. Ah, glaciers. Glaciers. Yes, yeah, yeah. For example, when a glacier melts or going down, a lot of dust is released, a lot, because there is a lot of... Yeah, a lot of friction when yeah. it's moving. So yes. I thought as well, like around our houses, I always thought or heard a lot of the dust is from people, our skin. It's one, one aspect, from skin, from clothing, from bicycle riding, you know. Oh, the tires. As they yeah, down. tires, the brakes, and the same with the cars. Mm -hmm. Tires, brakes, the engine. Is it engine? Yeah, the engine, the exhaust. Engine, yes. Everything. Yes, yes. the ruse. Hmm? Ruse. What's ruse? Suit? Is it suit? Ah, soot. Soot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard that word for years. It's, um, if you had a chimney when the smoke is on the side, yes. that's soot. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Dust is also a reflection of his surrounding. The dust in Leipzig is a different dust than in, in Mumbai or in Rome. Mm -hmm. It's a mirror of its surrounding. I like the idea of something really birthless. Mm -hmm. No, I like the idea to make some... Uh, to give something of no worth value? Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, bring a new spot on it mm -hmm. or a, a light to see the quality. Yeah, definitely. I've learned a lot about dust in the time we've sat down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has a tradition in art history. For example, Marcel Duchamp and Man Ray had this dust works, the dust breeding. And in the Das Große Glas, I don't know this French title of the big glass of Duchamp. So in, there's a small tradition working with the material. The painters in the late 19th century used dust and smoke to to make a artificial patina for their paintings yeah. to let them show older. So they, they made a heavy tobacco smoke and dust, you know, on their paintings. Oh, to make the paintings look older. Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, every artist is a child of its time and it's a complex time we're living in and with a lot of media and materials, new materials, you know, plastic didn't exist 100 years ago or 120 years ago. So why should I still, I don't know, portray somebody in oil when there's a lot more to explore? Berlin-based artist Wolf von Kries also works with existing and unconventional materials. Taking a short walk through the exhibition, he explains the story behind some of his pieces. Okay, the piece is a can, a shoe polish can, which contains styrofoam in large amounts, actually something like a column that has been growing out of the can and kind of blew up the lid and has now a size of 26 centimeters. It's a restaging of an actual accident, or as the English would call it, serendipity. So, which is a thing that happened at the laboratories of BASF in 1949, I believe. And they were researching telephone cables, trying to insulate cables to make telephone lines for Germany. After the war, most of real laboratory equipment was not yet available. Fritz Stastny, engineer there, was experimenting with shoe polish cans, empty shoe polish cans, and left this one in a heating device over the weekend, forgot it there. And that was the invention of styrofoam. I mean, like penicillin, I guess it was an accident that it was discovered. Exactly, yeah. To me at the time, I was very much interested in art coming out of accidental or byproducts of intentional processes. So th this kind of came out of that line of thought. 
would you say that this piece is typical of other works that you make, that they are from serendipity or they are from planned accidents? Um, not really. I would say, though, that I kind of try to find historical events that I'm interested in or sites or objects and I question them as to their origin and what they're composed of and if they're intersecting lines with other things to see the repleteness or the complexity of any given object. So this tire that's cut at the bottom, maybe you can explain a little bit the meaning behind it. It's a very simple intervention. It's basically cutting a wheel open, turning it into a loop. That's turning the thing that usually rolls on a road into a kind of a path itself, which ends at the beginning. I guess the departure point for this piece was thinking of the wheel the wheel as an archetype for progress, that the wheel and progress and the linearity of human progress was something that I think is a very modernist thought. And it has probably been proven wrong a million times, but we keep forgetting it. And so somehow this is kind of an ironic statement or an ironic commentary about these very idealistic goals of progress and order. So this corner of the museum, this is also other works by you? I mean, I think I read a little bit about this one with the snow on the ground. Yeah, it's, it's again, we see it, every, no, we don't see it anymore because we don't have any snow anymore in the winters. <laughs> but we used to see when you had fresh snow and people would be driving through the city, how the snow would collect under the bottom of the car and at some point when they would park or a, a red light would just drop off. So you would have these, in my eyes, very interesting objects, which are the product of a collection of a trajectory from point A to point B, which collects all the things that, all the emissions from the car, everything that is on the street, including things to stabilize the street in the snow, etc., etc. Obviously water, snow being the main component. And you have something between an arbitrary shape, which comes from the fact that it drops down, and a very molded shape because it is pressed against the car. So there's there are these two elements between chaos and a very controlled shape which are then being dropped all over the city. So there is something about this collecting, driving on, creating, whilst driving, that this kind of body, which then is deposed also in an arbitrary way. So it has something of Stasny's invention in a way. But for me, it's also the fact that it doesn't last. The fact that you look at it and it will be gone in half an hour mm. contains for me everything that a beautiful piece of art would be about. So the one on the ground here, if I'm not mistaken, this is the result of whatever's left over in your pocket at the end of the day. Yeah. So it consists of paper clips, which are a kind of an ordering device in any office. Not so much anymore since we're getting uh, a paperless, <laughs> exactly. But um, then it is attached to one another to form a chain. And like many ideas, this one wasn't mine either. I found two to three meters of this chain in Beijing, which was at the time just finishing the third ring. I think now they have seven or something. And I just saw that. And to me, I thought there was something really poetic about using paper clips to kind of wrap up whatever, you know, metro tickets or um, clippings or candy wrappings, cinema tickets, whatever you want, whatever you find in your pockets. And so I just decided that I was going to keep that chain, didn't really know what to do with it. And then I started just continuing building on whatever someone else has started there. It's kind of a contemplative meditational process. And it, at the same time, when you take 
take these things, you also revisit these places where you've actually, you know, when you've been to that cinema or concert, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like a, you could say a journal, a journal of consumption that has been spanning decades now, I suppose, and has a length over 60 meters. Constantly add to this. This is an ongoing piece. Exactly. It is, it is an own, like many of my pieces don't really have a beginning or an end. They just keep on growing. I guess the last one, is it a carpet? It's a hanging carpet? Or? It's, it's a quilt. It's been presented on the ground, rather. I prefer to have it hanging here. The thing about quilting is that I think all over the globe, in all cultures, quilting or patchworking is arguably the oldest of all recycling techniques of mankind. There is this moment of recycling built into it. The other thing is that it is quilting with moving blankets. Moving blankets are themselves the result of recycling. They're kind of felted pieces, sewn together pieces of millions of different tissues that have been turned into felt. And these pieces, or I would say the moving blankets themselves, are in their functionality and in their substance interesting to me because they contain many layers of what I find interesting. One being they are about moving. They are about going from A to B. So they are actually like the conglomerates. They are objects that are in constant motion. They are fundamentally without any value, yet are constructed to protect value. In South America and Brazil, in, in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, these moving blankets are very often used by homeless people. So there is something about moving, there is something about value, the absence of it, but used to actually protect value. And there is the moment of recycling. And in some respects, I would say it's the doubling of all of these functions by using this recycling material to do another traditional recycling technique. Also doing these works by hand. It's all hand-sewn. I think that's also something that surfaces in my work time and again. It's also contemplation about value production. There are hundreds of hours of sewing. Well, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. And certainly it wasn't me alone. That's maybe another dimension of the piece. It was actually the, the product of one long winter. And I had lots of friends coming over helping me sew. So there's also kind of a very, like quilting is in the States, it's a social activity. People bring it and then they, they work on it. So there's also lots of memories of me and my friends. I don't know if you're in that situation, but I hardly have time to see friends anymore, simply too busy. And this was kind of an exception where I caught up with a lot of people that I haven't seen in a long time and exchanging how life went. But fundamentally, my work also is very often about what actually is productivity or how is that not productive in the sense of creating things, maybe not the more productive thing at the end of the day. Productivity, but not to produce something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We call it busy work in English. Is that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, like when you're just moving things around for no apparent reason. Okay. Yeah, I think that sums my line of work up very well. <laughs> I quite like how, you, how all of your work is essentially from found materials. You've repurposed yeah. all of the materials throughout your work yeah. and I guess given them more meaning. Certain things maybe that were meaningless for a lot of people, but then you've infused meaning with how you've presented them. I, I think fundamentally I don't really think that we need to produce more things. Mm -hmm. I think there are already too many things out there, uh, including art, by the way, way too much. 
So my, I think, fundamental approach also to life is I don't really want to make more because it would be so much nicer if there would be less of everything, really. So, so kind of it's, it's an ideological departure point, which I wouldn't say I am too ideological about. But in general, I prefer actually contemplating about things that are there. And the less one needs to alter it, and alter everything, the better it is. It's kind of a, you could say, minimal conceptual beauty ideal. Shortly before the exhibition opened that evening, I had the opportunity to speak with Janetta Stoschek, the director of the Museum der Bildende Kunst zu Leipzig, to learn more about how the corona pandemic has impacted this exhibition and others at the museum. How long ago, when did Hannah and Lena approach you about the exhibition? Or how long was this in production, rather? I think in production it was a long time, but finally, because we wanted to open the exhibition in March at the end of the uh, period of the former director, Alfred Weidinger, mm -hmm. but then with Corona it was not possible. And also we had a lot, he had a lot of contact and they had also the concept. We finally or suddenly had to change it because it was not possible to work as before Corona. And so we had to rethink and remake a lot of things in a new way. Mm -hmm. And this was really, also with a good concept, you had to change a lot. No? Yeah. And this was also the, the difficulty for us. And I think also for all of us that you have a good concept. And also if you say we are working zero waste, we don't mm -hmm. have artists, they are traveling a lot and we want to combine it with other opportunities. But then with this shutdown, you couldn't travel, you couldn't move. And we had really to rethink it. Yeah. How big an impact did it have on this exhibition? I think at the end, the visitor won't see it now yeah. because it was more behind the... Um, oh, behind the scenes. Things, yes. Yeah, okay. To rethink how to, to organize a hanging and the packing because you always have to stay in the distance. Mm -hmm. And we also had to close another exhibition, the exhibition of Upal. We had to ask the artists, is it possible that we can close your exhibition because otherwise the visitors will come and then we have to count always how many people are oh, there yes, and things yeah, yeah. like that. Oh no? gosh, yeah. And who can come and then they wanted to start with a performance really and we want to make a lot of things out and with other people together but it's not possible in that moment we hope that a lot of the program can be shown or we can do it in the next month yeah. we hope that it will change but this was also a challenge yeah i mean it's great that it's still been able to go forward but i guess you've had to make a lot of compromises yeah but it was maybe it was more for us or especially for myself to see how working changed and that what we are used to do and how we work normally together was not possible. And also if we as a small community, our museum, we still have home office and things like that, we were used to it now. But to work with artists and two curators and then with the ministry, it was totally different because you had a lot of contact via emails and then the telephone, you didn't see each other, you only heard the voice or you read something. And then there were so much, so many emails. And at the end, you don't know, oh God, did I read everything? And it would have been easier normally if we would say, okay, 
I come to Berlin, you mm. come to us and we sit on a table and we discuss it. Yeah. You can make a lot of things without sitting in front of each other. Mm -hmm. It's important that you can also say a lot of things on the telephone. But I realized at a certain point you need the personal contact because then you have a little bit more time very often mm -hmm. and you make different questions or you talk in a different way and you don't say, what do you think about that, that, that. You develop a conversation and you see the face mm -hmm. and you see it. And also when you have a Zoom conversation, maybe you don't see the face or you don't see the person. It's also possible. But for me, it's also important to see, is he smiling yeah, or she yeah, or not? And yeah. is she, hmm, maybe <laughs> she wants to say something different. And yes, yes. And you know that there's also no behind or things like that. Yeah, definitely. We communicate so much non-verbally and you'd lose all of that with email. And it was also very difficult when we had the press conference. We had it also when we had the Yoko Ono exhibition that you, when you came from the press, you had to say, I would like to come and you had your card and so on. But here we had it also that you were invited and you were forced to say, okay, I come or not. And then we had chairs. There were people sitting, but one chair with a journalist and two without and so on. And all the journalists had this mask. Yeah. And we in front, we were sitting also and we had our distance and we were seeing only the mask and the eyes. And yeah. this was, this was terrible because you don't see a reaction. Huh? And it was a very new experience, <laughs> <laughs> which was not so, it was interesting, maybe. Yeah. Mm. But I was glad that it was possible to make that, that we had also interviews as we have it now, that also television was coming. And this is also important, but the surroundings and what you have to think about it was a challenge for the whole house. Yeah, definitely. And also to realize how it was before and what is now. And the question is also how it will go on mm -hmm. and what we will learn about it, what we can change and things were positive, but other things not. No? Yeah. From the museum's point, have you had to engage more digitally? Like you've had to put more content online? We tried to. We had also format MDBK Insight. It was really kind of channel where we had discussions with artists and so on. But on the other hand, it's also very expensive to do things like that. It's maybe charming if you make photos with your iPhone and you'll see, oh, look, what is going on. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you want to have also a format or something which is more professional yeah. and more convincing and not only, oh, it's charming in the beginning but you have to continue to work with a totally different media and to use it to make the people curious for something and to make something different from that what you normally see in the museum mm. otherwise i think it's boring no? same i agree and this is the point how to change or how to use a media in this period and how to continue with that and it's not only to use it but how to develop it that we can use it also in the future no? yeah but then to invite the people to come and to see i think it's an important way social media and also digital media but at the end for me was also the message this is a way that the people are curious but 
they are so curious that they say, I have to come. Exactly. It shouldn't replace going to the museum. Yeah. It should encourage them to want to go more, if anything. This is, I think, it sounds so stupid, but at the end, to have the opportunity to see an original thing, to see it really in the space, and that's also so important, a performance. Yes, we can show it also on a flat screen afterwards, but it's so important also to be part of it. Mm -hmm. And that are things because you have not only the space where something is happening and then your own choice where you're watching or not. These are things which I think are very important or to see it really in the dimensional way. And yes, of course, it's interesting to make a video about the whole exhibition, but to be part of it and to take your own time. This is something you can't I think this is unique and this is something which is very important. But I think we have to use more and more another way to, to communicate also with more people. How do you feel then the COVID will impact the social engagement with the museum? Because as I understand, there's often quite an active exchange within the community. Lena was explaining to me before, you have a lot of tours on a Sunday and with, with their Zero Waste exhibition, they also have a lot of partnerships and a lot of people collaborating. So there was a DIY workshop. I hope that we can work together and that it's going on, but still I don't know in this moment, how we will realize it. And I'm glad the exhibition will be until November. Oh, that's good. Yes, we make it a longer time because how will be the situation? For us, it's important to open the museum, to open it also with an interesting message, zero waste, mm -hmm. but in an artistic, aesthetic way, not only look You don't have to do that and that. But it's important to support the whole exhibition with the workshops and with the local community. So it's part of a bigger experience. That's not only a small island here in the museum and we are doing something. No, we would like to work over the town, over the city. In this way, I can imagine that somebody who likes to repair something maybe comes then also to the museum. Yeah. Or otherwise. Or, uh, yes, or vice versa. Yeah, I can ask. This is the point, no? And also to make it not so strict, to make it also in a little bit to... Um, Spielerisch is, is, is it more playful? Is yes. And to have fun also and to enjoy it and to say, oh God, that's possible to do it. I'm hoping yeah. that's going on. Because that would be very, very important. Collaboration, new media, and playfulness all relate to my final guests on today's episode, Bianca Kennedy and the Swan Collective, who utilize virtual reality and augmented reality to explore the future of food in their contribution to the Zero Waste exhibition. Bianca Kennedy and the Swan Collective. Is this the first time that you've both collaborated together? No, actually, it's quite often that we collaborate. We started eight years ago to build miniature models and do films together about the future of ecology, basically about the hybridization of humans, plants and animals. From there, we just started to make a big project every two years. Every two years, we combine forces. We need this break apart to work separately on our projects and to have the energy then to combine it again. The projects that you do individually, how do they differ from what you do together? Hmm, that is a good question. I always work with some kind of video or moving image. So that can also be virtual reality, but I have also done found footage works where I gathered bathtub scenes. And for me, the bathtub was an important thing in the past because it's such a special place where you're alone, naked and true to your feelings. So I have done quite a bit about that. 
Yeah, and I'm not exclusively sticking to new media, so I also paint or draw or build with my hands. But to me, it's always the foundation to go further and create a digital layer to that. So I might project a film onto the canvas that I painted with acrylic colors, but then you have this time-based medium added to that. And I like to combine a lot of meta layers. In my art, yeah. I saw you two pieces that are in the show. Animalia Sum or Animalia Zoom? Well, it's Latin, so it's we don't know no. <laughs> how they how, how they pronounce it, but I would guess Animalia Sum. And then the other one was called A Closed Mouth Gathers No Feet. Yeah, that's right. Is the work that's in Zero Waste a similar theme that you carry throughout this relationship between humans, ecology, and our relationship to nature? Yeah, yeah. So when we started, we were deeply fascinated by the idea that, or the fact that nature is inherent intelligent and that plants can communicate with each other and warn each other by exchanging pheromones or gases. There's like this hidden layer that we humans tend to dismiss and also like we humans tend to dismiss any intelligence that's beneath us or we, th we <laughs> think it's beneath us. So um, we did a lot of research and read a lot and found out that reality is quite interesting and quite sci-fi like <laughs> if you dive deep and we started to develop this vision of the future where you have like hybrid beings which are part plant part human part animal and from there we just continued this saga <laughs> and created films and books and magazines and uh, now this VR and AR pieces. Was this the first time you both worked with virtual reality and augmented reality? Um, we each have done virtual reality before. Uh, you have two virtual reality works. I have one and this one was the first one together and a little different with um, if, if you move your head, you have the antennae in the beginning and it moves accordingly so it's a little 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 interactive and this is the first time that we use that in a virtual reality piece but you're working on a new one and this will all be interactive. Yeah, that was really strange actually in the piece when it said to to harvest the bug and then when you turned your head and you could, yes it wasn't a nice feeling actually <laughs> yeah many many people really don't like it many are fans and it's a, has a gaming character and they love to do it and they're really good at it and others are standing there and just do not want to do that and that's great if yeah. <laughs> that you are in this role now where you have to milk those insects and yeah. just don't want to do it. Yeah, and have this like emotional reaction to that virtual piece that you're witnessing. So they really, they feel bad about themselves to harm the beetles, which is kind of crazy because also like the bugs that you see in the piece, they are just uh, <laughs> um, miniatures that we build in the studio. So it's mm -hmm. like clay models that we painted with uh, watercolors. I mean, it's like a cute process. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, yeah. So they're not, I mean, they are They are not like now. CGI. Yeah. Right. We have uh, photogrammetry those miniatures and scanned the watercolors for the backgrounds and then recorded our movements with a bodysuit and put those movements into the insects. So the dancing beetle is Felix's movements <laughs> while he's dancing. <laughs> So how did you come up with the idea then? So for Animalia Zoom? Yeah, like Felix said, um, mankind has not really words for feelings insects might have. So maybe it's another system. We don't have any idea if they have feelings or if this is even the right word. But we absolutely know that a whale is more important than a bug because it's bigger and it's cute and we like it. But we could also totally dislike it. It's society that says that whales are cool. Maybe they're evil monsters. What do we know? So um, we were thinking about about how to ask this question, who is more important than the other one? 
I mean, with this piece, especially, we didn't want to have any moral opinion or to say how to live your life right or to be a vegetarian. It's just uh, makes you think about some certain scenarios that might develop in the future or solutions about how to feed humanity, how to produce more proteins, how to switch from animal based meat to maybe like uh, insect proteins. And there are a lot of scientists who say that's the solution. Yeah, we all should just harvest insects and that uh, solves all the problems that we have. We just want to show or to create empathy for this <laughs> the the um, the losers of this scenario, which would be a trillion bucks that would be harvested and killed. Maybe they have a different opinion about that. You were saying about the moral dilemma people have. Was that also why you picked insects rather than cows or pigs? Because that's kind of already set within a way of life and that we know, okay, that's a living animal. But then when we see it at the supermarket... There's already a disconnect there. But with bugs, we don't have that pre-existing relationship with them as a food source. We just know them as pests most of the time. Yeah, um, you don't feel sorry for them initially. You're happy if they are like gone <laughs> out of your room, for example. But this is like the beauty of virtual reality because people maybe for the first time empathize with those ugly creatures and they feel sorry for them and crazy that this can happen if you just put those plastic goggles on and suddenly you have a genuine feeling about all that which you didn't have before and this is like really exciting for us as artists to have those new tools in our hands now yeah definitely like i was saying before with the stick or whatever it was is it a stick or a claw it's a stick a stick but then harvesting the bug all of it's virtual the animation and everything else i definitely felt from wearing the headset and then when i moved it had an impact on what i was looking at Even that simple gesture was a lot more powerful than just seeing a picture of something or having something described to me, knowing that when I move, it's hurting that thing that's in front of me. <laughs> yeah, you could really feel it. It was, mm -hmm. it was quite unusual. It was really unexpected. <laughs> that's fantastic that you had this feeling and how you talking about it. We, we love that. That's what we wanted. Yeah, this notion of agency that you suddenly have, that it's not like a linear piece that just happens in front of you mm -hmm. where you can close your eyes or you can leave the room. It's somehow your responsibility to have a reaction or to even influence the piece. And um, you just can't close your eyes from that. Or even if you close it, something might happen that you still are generating or influencing. Yeah. So there's no way out. <laughs> <laughs> the second one. A closed mouth gathers no feet. That's the one. <laughs> What was the concept behind that one? It's additional to the VR piece. We show it separately too, but it fits very well together. We read a lot before doing Animaya Sum and we met with scientists who are working on antibiotics and medicine. We had few ideas left over and also wanted to show them. So we picked augmented reality series. So it's based on watercolors we did. And with a mobile phone or tablet, you can augment and extend this reality and see another layer. And with that layer, you also again have a time frame where you can see something and we can put the ideas that were left over into that <laughs> too and whereas Animaya is more about eating insects is a closed mouth gathers no feet a little more about the medicine part of it. Yeah, also like the, the cultural part it's like depicting a future scenario where insects are already arrived in a positive way in society and people are not like only offended by them or wanted to get rid of them so there's like this tarot piece where they try to uh, see the future by reading the insect movements or so it's like this whole cultural aspect to that that extends the, the VR piece yeah. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode and found some inspiration from the people involved in the show. Please let me know what you think of this format and if it's something you'd like to hear more of in the future. Although travel is still very much a luxury right now, you can visit Zero Waste at the Museum der Bildende Kunst Leipzig until the 8th of November 2020. The catalogue of the exhibition is now available, the proceeds of which will go to the tree planting project by artist Andreas Greiner with the aim of offsetting the CO2 footprint in the exhibition. You can pick up a copy directly at the museum or online from the Berlin Art Bookstore, Do You Read Me? I've also provided links to the exhibition itself together with the social media of the artists featured in today's episode. However, if you'd like any additional information or there's something you're not able to find, don't be afraid to get in touch. Subtext and Discourse is streaming on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review or rating to help others discover the show. As always, I welcome any comments, questions or feedback to this and previous episodes of the program. Thanks once again for tuning in. Next episode will be up in two weeks. Until then, stay healthy and take care. My name is Michael Zuni, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.